Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 342. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you're here to join us today. I am also thrilled to introduce our guest, Jeff Jones. Jeff is a family recovery coach from the Family Recovery Solution. Jeff, I'm so happy that you're here. Well, thank you very much, Kim. I appreciate the invite. Oh, you're so welcome. Jeff, I'd love if you would share your story with the listeners so they know how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thank you. My story. For my story, I would go back to being seven, eight, nine years old. And my parents would take my sister and I to my grandfather's cabin at Kentucky Lake. It was one of the most wonderful experiences for me as a child, because at my grandfather's, more love and attention got showered upon me than in my family of origin any other time of my life. So when we went to Kentucky, the whole family kind of situation changed. One is I was getting all this love and attention. Another thing is my mother, who was incredibly competent and ran our family, down in Kentucky. She was in the shadows. She was quiet, almost mousy. And the other thing that was going on, and it came to my attention, not because I saw it, but because my sister told me about it, my three female cousins were not getting that attention. So that's kind of the basis of my story right there. And kind of um, fast forward to Um, becoming a counselor and a therapist and getting a master's degree and all that kind of stuff. I really wanted to do something that I was passionate about, that meant something really, really important to me. And so I chose my own family, probably like a lot of therapists do, um, which was families, addiction, and eventually trauma. So those three things became my focus. And the more I learned, the more I kind of understood what happened to me as a child. And in psychobabble terms, that would be intergenerational transmission, but essentially that love and and attention that was showered upon me by my grandfather And at seven, eight, nine years old, I didn't know my grandfather was an alcoholic. That word was never really used. But it's like as as I got older, I learned more about it. And every question I had from my mother was, Jeff, what you really need to understand is your grandfather's an alcoholic, which was not really very fulfilling to me. Um. You know, in my 20s and 30s, I did my share of drugs and alcohol. But when I became a therapist, I really wanted to better understand this. And and this kind of the intergenerational transmission piece is 
kind of like a passing on of carrying the grief and trauma in the family, a passing on of that role. And I really didn't know, I didn't sign up for that role, but oftentimes in that role, the best way to numb all of the feelings of carrying grief and pain that's not really all mine is drugs and alcohol, and they numb that out. Right. So that's kind of the basis of why I'm doing what I'm doing, because it took me 40 plus years to heal. And it really doesn't need to take families 40 plus years to heal, or in some cases, divided, separated, cut off, and that's the end of family relationships. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's the story behind it. Thank you so much for sharing. I've seen in my own family history that and from viewing other families that so many families don't look for help until, and this is going to sound pessimistic, but until it's too late. So what would be your advice? And is this what you're finding with your clients as well, that they're coming at a time when they really could have used your help years ago? Yeah. But now it's a point of crisis and it's either do this or fall apart completely. Yep. Exactly. And um, wow, I really appreciate you saying that. One thing that I want to make really clear is this isn't the family's fault. They feel responsible. They keep it to themselves. Um, they may feel shame, but it's really not their fault. Kind of how I see this is that our culture doesn't, it's not really in the business of, you know, solving the addiction problem. And so it falls to families to deal with because, you know, we can, whether it's a um, substance or behavior, not everybody is going to have the same reaction. Not everybody's body is equally vulnerable to addiction. So some of us can get it very, very easily. But, you know, going right to your question, it's like it happens all the time that families wait and wait and wait. And waiting really probably isn't the best word. It's more like they're doing their best. They're doing their best. And there's so very little resources. So I've done what I've done to kind of bridge resources to where family members can get online and they can even do it anonymously and start to connect with other people just like them and resources, family-specific resources to kind of help them start to understand a larger picture of what's going on around the addiction. Hmm. I I can see that. One of my good friends, his son died several years ago from a heroin overdose. Mm. And mm. the opioid, did I say that right? Crisis yes, is huge yeah. all over the U.S., as far as I know, all over the world. But they're yeah. very much so around, not right in my town, but in the community surrounding 
my town. And it's just unfortunate. And I've even seen issues where medical symptoms that we're facing are being treated with more drugs rather than really going to the root of the whole problem. And often that's that's the cause of so many issues in the family too. We are treating the symptoms right. via, like you just said, we're treating the symptoms via drugs and alcohol rather than going down to the root because it's more accessible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the other part of it that I see is that our system of care, our larger kind of um, way that healing happens or the services that are available focus on one person. And so, you know, this kind of looking at the larger picture is kind of in, in the shadows. And the opioid crisis is huge. I mean, the statistics that I say all the time come from facingaddiction.org, which is every four minutes, someone in our country, the U.S., dies of an overdose or an alcohol-related cause. So every four minutes, that's, that's like wow. the equivalent of a jumbo jet going down. And just with that statistic, there's like one in three families impacted by a death. And I think, oh, my gosh, how many families are impacted by addiction before death? So it's like this is a huge problem. And I think a lot of us know. um, And there's a lot of kind of like. So what can we do about it? Because there's so many people on the front lines really trying to do their best in the kind of the system of healing that we have set up, system of healing or recovery, whatever the right word is there for that. So how can we get in there earlier and prevent this? Yeah, so what I am doing is... A big part of my program is shifting thinking, like how we think about this problem, problem being the statistic that I just quoted, or how families think about addiction in their family, or even at the earlier stage, like, is this a problem? Is this not a problem kind of stage? Or shifting the thinking with um, professionals, you know, whether it's an addiction professional or a therapist, but just shifting the thinking there as well to include the larger context. Because even professionals like insurance will pay for an individual, the diagnosis or but the definition of addiction is Largely, it's a brain disease, which I am in the camp of, yes, and it's more than that. But when people see it just as a brain disease, it's kind of like easy to stay narrowly focused on that one person and for family members or professionals to think, well, you just need to get your brain fixed and here's what you need to do, A, B, C kind of thing. So. I'm trying to have like a both and 
expand around this narrow focus, expand and get information kind of from the context, and then how can we bring that information in to make best decisions for this situation that's right in front of us right now? Jeff, I've realized recently, well, not not so recently, but I think I've been more aware of the expression of workaholic more and more recently. And I am, you know, this isn't drugs or alcohol, but I am addicted to my work and it does affect my family Yeah, because I've realized that I can be harder on my children, especially my older ones when my younger ones are distracting me. And then I get more stressed because I know I need to be working it. And it's in some ways, it's not that much different from needing you know, my latest hit of something. No, I, I don't do, I don't do drugs and I rarely drink alcohol, but it does impact my family. So how do you recommend that we start looking at our family? And, and I know you said it's about shifting thought, but what steps, well, I'm just going to use an entrepreneurial family, for example, how can we start shifting things right now? so that our family dynamics get better even in the midst of the craziness that's going around i know i know we're talking about you know family recovery more so on the topic of substances but there are so many other issues that can be affecting why it comes about but I, and i'm just going to i want to go back to what you were also saying about your grandfather I've noticed that I do favor my attention on the littles just because sometimes it doesn't occur to me that my bigs need it just as much. You know, they need that quality time with mom or dad. They need the words of encouragement. They need the love. And I forget about it because they are so self-sustaining. But I don't want them to think that they're getting gypped in the end. And I don't want them to turn to something else because they're not getting what they need from their parents. And I think that so many entrepreneurs could find themselves in that same boat. Hey, my kid's old enough to make something to eat. I can just send him to go do that. He doesn't need my attention. He's happy playing video games. But when we let go too much, that's where other things come in. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That. Thank you very much for bringing in that. Well, actually, what I heard you did there is you expanded it from like drugs and alcohol addiction on one person to like a larger definition of addiction or what I hear is a larger definition of addiction and how it plays out in addictions like workaholism. So one of the first things that I want to say is when you first started talking about this, Kim, I know this is audio, but I had my hand raised like with the, you know, focus on work thing to the exclusion of other things. And so the one way that I look at this is the definition of addiction that comes from a mentor of mine, Gabor Mate, um, That definition is really any behavior that initially is pleasurable, gives reward, but over time ends up causing a problem to self, other, family kind of thing, and 
even though we try, we can't stop it. So that's his definition, like a larger perspective definition of addiction. And so using myself as an example, when I raised my hand, so I'm in the process of, you know, writing a book right now and oftentimes can get up in the morning and I try to use my mornings for writing. That doesn't happen every morning, but a lot of mornings. And so what I have noticed is my brain makes a lot of dopamine when I'm writing. I mean, I'm very passionate about what I'm doing and I realize it's difficult to communicate what I'm doing. So I'm writing a book, but that morning time was my exercise time. And so I, that exercise time has kind of gone away. So it's like I am not my own self-care. I'm compromising my own self-care there. Uh, I'm not going to get a DUI for that or anything like that. And over a long period of time, I may start to get some. Um, you could get a life sentence. <laughs> right. A life sentence of, um, you know, not taking care of myself in the way that I know is going to be helpful. So that's an example that comes from me, and I'm in this process like every day. And so I need to make choices to where I can do both, where I can like the passion that I have for writing, that I can engage in that and incrementally move along with that, but then also engage in you know, physical activity and taking care of my body and um, engaging with other people. And like one of the things I try to do twice a week is play volleyball with this group of guys. And we've been doing this for years. So and I think what really helps is everyone to take an honest look at themselves. Like you mentioned work well, how do I do what needs to be done, not just, you know, all the busyness that I want to do and look at really take a hard look at, you know, what does my family need? What do my kids need? What do I want to provide for them? What's most important? All of those kinds of things, which I know when I get myopically focused on just writing and how exciting and, you know, passionate this is and how much this can make a difference. And I really do believe this can make a difference in the world when family members are more in a position of strength to be able to make choices. But it's like I can't knock myself out or kill myself or like take away all self-care for Jeff to do this because then I put myself at risk. Absolutely. Wow. Did I answer your question, Kim? Yeah. I think a lot of the time we are so focused on the minute details that we forget to step back and look at the bigger picture. Yeah. And I've been in that way myself. I've been so engrossed in my work that I haven't taken a 
good look at what I'm doing to my body. And as a way of dealing with stress, I will not deny that there have been times that I've had a margarita, whereas I could have gone and done something healthier for myself. Even, and (laughs) I'm not saying that spending more time with my kids would necessarily be less stressful than, than work, but it would be giving them the attention that they needed as well. And it would be getting away from work. I mean, even just going to the park or going for a walk with my family would be a better option than going to the margarita bottle. Listeners, I'm not trying to alarm you. (laughs) This is not a nightly occurrence. It's like a once a month or once every two months. But we forget to take that step back. I am guilty. Well, 10 times over. Yeah. Of not taking steps back regularly. And I think it's important that we, you know, don't hammer on ourselves or beat ourselves up for, you know, having a margarita or something like that. But if having a margarita is the only strategy that we have, then that's going to be a problem because we use that strategy over and over again and we can easily get into a you know, a habitual process and we can get into an addiction. Anybody can get into an addiction, but it's like, how easy is it to get out is a very, very different story. But, the, you know, you bring up a really good point is that alcohol is, is in our culture and alcohol in itself is not evil. I really want to make that clear. Um, and I think what is most important is that we all have multiple resources available to us to bring ourselves back to center, to kind of refuel our energy, our body, our thinking. I mean, there's numerous ways to do that. And I mean, here's this is the positivity podcast. So there's all kinds of like positive thinking can be a way to resource ourselves. Meditation can be a way to resource ourselves. The exercise thing can be a way to resource ourselves. Hanging out with friends who are positive and inspire us can be a resource. So there's where we get into problem is if we only have one resource. So yes, I can see that. I'm even thinking about my husband and my older boys. My husband's a video game developer. Oh, wow. So, you know, video game addiction is very prevalent in our house. And that's not helping anything either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stressed, you know, have a stressful day at work, jump on the video game. Yeah. Have a stressful day at school, or not even stressful, but I'm addicted. So, the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is jump on a video game. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it isn't like, you know, video games are evil either. But if that's the only strategy that we have to kind of. Absolutely. Just like what you were saying, like if every day at the end of my day I jump on and do that, you know, that can be over time, it can be problematic. So, I think for all of us to just be aware of having being able to have more than one way to feel the way we want to feel like at the end of the day. 
if we only have that one strategy, like in your example, video games, or if we only have that one strategy in like having a margarita or a glass of wine, and we do that over and over and over again, that potentially over time can be, it's, it's like, yeah, it can be a problem. But the other thing, like expanding it out even further, we're going to be less connected to um, really the purpose, our purpose in the world and how we, we can express it and really manifest it. And, and so I really believe that more of us, like the world needs us. <laughs> yeah, they do. Jeff, I want to jump back to something that you just said, though. You said how we want to feel at the end of the day. Yeah. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have I, I don't know what I would have said. I would have just said, well, at the end of the day, I'm just so tired. I don't, what do you mean how I want to feel? Yeah. And I have a feeling I'm not alone. Right. You know, or I wouldn't have been alone. Yeah. So I would love for you to jump into that just a little yeah. bit and talk more about that desired feeling. Because in the last few years, I've learned more about it, but I think other people need to learn more as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty common um, that we live in a culture, we live in an environment with a fair amount of stressors and, um, how we deal with those stressors are, I mean, people have different ways on how to do that. And, you know, the media advertisements, marketing, all that kind of thing. It's like, they're trying to answer that question for us. Like, you know, using something specific like Nike's just do it kind of thing, or, you know, whether it is some kind of advertisement for alcohol or something like that. But it's like everybody, like if they feel pain and they may not consciously know it, but if they don't feel well, they're going to do something to feel better. And so that something could be, well, I feel better when I have a glass of wine every night at the end of my day because I worked hard. I deserve it. And it's only one glass of wine and it's not a problem. So get off my back kind of thing. And and so it's easy to like get into some kind of cycle like that. And you know, when we just have the one strategy, that's a problem. But the other thing, like we're not always aware of how we feel. We're not always aware of what stressors are and specifically when they come from like our childhood or something. So I think back to, you know, I was having a conversation with a woman who did heroin and one of the things that she said was like, the first time I did heroin, I felt like I got a soft, warm hug that I never got before. And so that was really powerful for me um, because, hey, that's like who wouldn't want a soft, warm hug? And specifically, if they never had that, if they never experienced that, if they found a way to have that feeling, boy, how difficult would it be to um, 
to do that over and over with any kind of stressor. So for me, that kind of gets into like connection and the power of human connection. And with addiction, we kind of get more connected to whatever we have the addiction with, which in that example was heroin. It could be our work. It could be, you know, the wine. It could be any number of things. But what is our relationship with that? And what is our relationship with humans, real people? I, right. I had to bite my tongue over here. I was like, wait, Jeff, you're not just supposed to be like a nice warm hug like we've never had before. That that sounds amazing. This isn't helping the opioid crisis at all. Yeah. But yeah, you're exactly right, though. It's that human connection that is lacking. It's just even the open communication that we often lack because we're afraid of saying the right thing or we're afraid of connecting with people because we're afraid that they won't like us. So rather than put ourselves out there and be vulnerable, so many of us just hide and we turn to the other devices to take that spot. Right. And so I'm going back to my own little story here is when we grow up in a family with a structure like that gets created in families with addiction. And again, I want to say that that structure gets created through no fault of anybody in the family. But when we grow up in that kind of structure as children, that's what we get used to. And so it's like one thing to point at is communication. Um, and it's like relationships between people and like are there things in communication that are off the table that everybody in the family just knows, for instance, like what could be under the umbrella of family rules and everybody just kind of knows what they are. Maybe people couldn't really articulate them, but they kind of know what the rules are and they know like not to have a conversation about certain things, not to, I may be able to talk to one person about this, but I can't talk to this other. Like in my family, I could talk to my sister about some things that with my mom, I pretty much couldn't. And I tried like even as a, you know, within the last 15 years, I tried having a conversation about things that were secret. And, you know, my mom looked down and she couldn't say anything and she just started crying. So she gave me information, but she couldn't really have specific, she couldn't tell me anything specific. So communication is not direct. What happens in families is People in different roles, they're imagining the thoughts and feelings of other family members. And instead of checking that out, they assume that's true and they act on that. So mm, I, can, I can totally see that. So one way yeah. to start making change, and this may sound simplistic, and in some ways it is, like this isn't rocket science, but the further along this structure gets kind of cemented, the harder it is to change it. But 
like just being able to have like family meals together or once a week doing a little family check-in, like even the, you know, like a, a weather report. I feel a little stormy here or, you know, and to be able to talk about why kind of just go around the table, spend 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is, and just check in with people that, I mean, it sounds so simple, but actually it's like we're moving further and further away from some things like this that we, that we all kind of know about or grew up with or have experienced before. And it's like, so we all kind of a little more disconnected and we all, it's easy to assume. So I'm just kind of going on and on here, Kim, and I'm actually. No, I really appreciate <laughs> it so much because I see that I see it so much in my family and we can, I'm going to go back to my older boys again. It's easy to assume that I know it's easy to assume why they did something or why they didn't do something. And I even see with them fighting with each other because they assume a situation. Mm -hmm. And that's not healthy. And in between my relationship with my ex-husband and my current husband, communication has gone up 2,000%. My current husband and I, we talk about everything, even stuff that people would probably find inappropriate to talk about. We know everything that's going on and we communicate about it. And if more families could just be communicating more, and I am not saying that my family is perfect by any means, because there are so many nights, most nights actually, when we don't do family dinner. Right. Listeners, this is me being totally transparent because I am a workaholic and there are nights where I will be sitting at my desk and my littles will be sitting at the table eating their dinner, but I'm trying to get something done. And Thank you. You just actually gave me a big kick because I have been working really hard to block out that time for my littles, but I have not been dedicated to it. And as a result, my older kids are seeing the actions that I'm taking. So they're stopping eating at the table as well, asking if they can eat somewhere else. And the whole family is getting disconnected. So it's time that we bring ourselves back together. So thank you. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. And I think it is um, quality time as opposed to just FaceTime. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. So, and there's, you know, sometimes I talk with families about, you know, very simple things like this, and they're way past this. They're like, you know, many years past this. And so I don't want to be kind of putting the message out there that this is a do-all and end-all. There's a lot of different, you know, behaviors, relationships. I can even think of them as like, you know, rituals that we do over and over again. Like when I think back to being a kid, we, you know, ate together as a family. And that's just an example probably about 90% of the time. I mean, and, and my mom made that a very big deal, despite growing up in a family with a structure like addiction and all that, my mom did make that a very big deal. So, 
it's and I'm kind of struggling here. What is one thing that I can say that's applicable to a lot of people? And I'm not sure there is just one thing, but this is just an example. I love it. And I'm not the expert here, but I really have to say open up the doors of communication. Sure. Because without communication, nobody else is going to have any idea what's going on. But when you open up the doors of communication to allow yourself to share, you also have to open up the ability and the pathways and the acceptance to allow other people to share as well without casting judgment. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I... I Upon them, because you don't want judgment cast upon you. You want to be able to share your feelings without being told that they're wrong. Right. Yeah. That is so important. And I mean, what you said right there, I think everybody in a family, I think, wants what you just said. They want to be seen and heard and their opinion, their perspective to be respected, mm-hmm. you know, and if over and over again, we get the message that our perspective or what we say is not being heard or is not wanted, or someone is constantly correcting us, we're going to probably change what we say and do. You know, i.e. kind of put it under the table and try to become something that I'm not, which could lead to, you know, things like saying one thing and doing another. It could lead to lying. It could lead to just a lot of like warning sign behaviors for addiction So, you know, and lying, manipulation, and stealing. I mean, so addiction is kind of like an incremental process. And the conversation we're having here is very early stage and warning signs. And, you know, I really want your listeners to know that um, there's a lot of stages in this path And so oftentimes, like, we don't have these early stage conversations like what we're having about basic things like communication or having dinner together or, you know, finding ways to connect and really listen to one another. So, Jeff, I wasn't planning on coming on this episode today and having family therapy solo family therapy but family therapy all the same but you just put me back at the kitchen table Uh, you just put me back in my family a significant lot more than i am and listeners you know i have five children i am not saying that i don't spend time with my kids yeah or my husband but it is so easy to get wrapped up in everything else And just lose sight of what's most important. And when we start, our focus on our family starts slipping. It's really easy to just lose grasp altogether. And I've just had my eyes opened. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So a couple things that I want to say. One is 
what I do online is not, I'm not in like a therapist kind of role. I'm in a coach role. And that's important for a number of different reasons. Could you explain the difference to anybody who might not be clear? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing is, you know, therapy, it's a professional relationship. There's a very clear agreement and it is in writing and it would happen like when you the first or second time when you meet a therapist and you're trying to assess like, is this the right person for me? So there's a legal part of it. Um, and then also therapy is largely not entirely, but you know, therapy is somewhat of a deficit model that uses diagnosis kind of language and thinking from what's called the DSM-5 Diagnostic Statistics Manual. And so when we are talking to people and looking at people through the lens of diagnosis, it's so easy for therapists to see deficits, to just look for deficits. So that's something that I kind of, that's kind of what therapists are, um, that's their responsibility. And especially if insurance companies are involved, the therapist needs to give that individual a diagnosis for an insurance company to pay or decide how much they're going to pay. Right. And with coaching, coaching more or less, even though there may be like an initial understanding of what all's going on, the majority of focus is where do you want to go? What's the future look like? And then in, in coaching, we kind of, you know, look at where a person wants to go, where they're at now, and then how do we navigate that space between the two? And that whole thinking process and the way the professional looks at it, coaching is more forward thinking. That said, if the coach sees someone looping, going round and round kind of thing, coaches are educated enough to look out for certain problems. And if they see something like that, they can request, hey, it'd be great to get a therapist on the team here, you know, to get a therapist on board. And even, I mean, not always, but if the client wants that, they can sign a release of information and to where the professionals can be on the same page and, you know, be working more together as opposed to just in opposite directions. So, yeah. Thank you so much for providing that insight. I'm sure I'm sure there's listeners who just weren't clear. So I can see the difference because I've had therapists, I've had coaches. Sure. And I can see the difference in how they worked. But I, you did an excellent job of really digging deep into it and just explaining. What would you say is the top reason or the number one trigger 
I can't think of a better word than that right now, why most of your clients are coming to you right now. Mm -hmm. And that's part one of the question. And number two, if there's a listener who's listening and it resonates with, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. So why most clients come to me right now is, so one of the things that I do is intervention. And the majority of calls that I get right now is around intervention. And so generally, people are at a much further along stage with addiction than the conversation that we just had about that was more about warning signs and catching things early and making changes early. When by the time people are willing to reach out, they have probably tried numerous things. They have not worked. They're irritated. They're frustrated. They're at the end of their rope. So that could be. So here's an example. A grandmother who has a daughter and her daughter has a daughter and the daughter has gotten in trouble in another state or something and the grandmother brings her in to her house and provides a lot of place to live for her daughter and her granddaughter and you know pretty much whatever they need because the grandmother there's a lot of love there and i get that but oftentimes like in this example the daughter has had some problems for instance with drinking and those problems have happened over and over again and what the grandmother is providing kind of takes the weight off of the daughter to actually feel the weight of from the con from her own behavior from the consequences of her behavior to where like um buying her a car and providing her with a place to live and stuff like that makes it easy for the addiction pattern to continue even though the grandmother really wants her granddaughter safe you know and her main motivation may be to keep her granddaughter safe but then her daughter's addiction problem or her relationship with alcohol is not a priority here and it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse so what i have done is i've strung together a number of facilitated processes that a family could learn about start to understand and assess whether this is something they would want to do or not and so what i call that what i have is an online family recovery community which i call the deep community and people can sign up anonymously learn a lot of information they can also i have two community chats a week to where they can get some questions answered they can connect with one another anonymously like 
on a platform that has three chat rooms, not like a Facebook thing where, you know, my Facebook identification is known. So what I've done here is to kind of create something where family members can reach out early and start to get information to where they can start making changes and actually make changes before intervention is needed, ideally. I love that. And I love how you're making it a safe place. Yeah. And an anonymous. Yeah. Thank you. So there, and people could find a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on here and I'm kind of like hitting the peaks. Um, but people could find out more about it at, um, the family recovery solution.com. Um, and there's a lot of information there and actually someone can click on a button and schedule time with me and have a conversation and assess like, is this something that's right for me? And the community itself is like $45 a month and they can share the username and password with everybody in their family. So everybody in their family can get on board with the same information. And it's like when more than one person in the family starts to change, the system will change quicker. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Listeners, if you're driving or just unable to write that down right now, you'll be able to find all of Jeff's links and the show notes at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP342. And before Jeff, before I ask for your parting piece of advice or golden nugget, I'd love to invite you, the listeners, to share this episode and also to rate and review it because I know that there's a lot of families who would benefit greatly off the content that we've discussed today and off the benefits and off of Jeff's programs. And you don't, you may not know who in your community could benefit, but by sharing, you would be doing them a favor. Mm -hmm. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on positive productivity today. This has been an absolute pleasure. And as I already said, you've given me some action items that I need to take in my own house. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you could offer to listeners? Um, So one thing that I could say to let everyone know here is that addiction in the family is not rare. This happens all the time. And there is a way to change this early. There is hope. You are not alone, and this whole online situation is one way that people can start to engage early. So, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six- to seven-figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.